Welcome back to Corks and Crime. I'm Heather. I'm Natalie. This is episode two, and we are doing homegrown homicide. Going to talk about a couple of crimes that happen in our own hometowns. And we kind of want to start by talking about what we're listening to. Oh, but wait. What we're drinking. <laughs> but first. <laughs> we are enjoying some Lavostra Prosecco, which is quite delicious. Very good. So make sure you check out the Vivino app. You can scan labels. It tells you where you can purchase, what you should pair it with, the ratings. It's awesome. Love it. I love the what you can pair it with. Yeah. Because I, I will drink anything with anything. Me too. But some people do care about right. what you should be drinking. Right. Exactly. They, they've got your back. They've yeah. got you. So um, right now for podcasts, I have just started Culpable. And I know, Natalie, you have not started it yet. I want to, though. It's real good. And we are deep into 22 hours, which you're ahead of me. I've got to finish <sighs> the last episode. Yes, you have to. It's um, so good. Yeah. I, we were talking before we started about um, how Darren Went is deciding to get on the stand or he did get on the stand right and we think that that's crazy yeah it blew my mind but I mean I'm just gonna say this if you're a defense attorney first off I've never been on a jury and I really want to be you don't I'm telling you you don't (laughs) I do so bad I mean I'm thankful for like the experience but I had the most Boring case ever. It was about property. Yeah, and it yours, was just yeah, horrible. Yeah, yours was really boring. And property, too, is a little over my head. Yeah, it was over my head, for yeah. sure. We've mentioned in the first podcast that we're both nurses. Mm-hmm. So medicine stuff, good. We get medical stuff. Absolutely. But like when we were going through the process of buying our house, I know that my realtor was like, how many brain cells <laughs> does this girl have? Because and she would say words, and I'm like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. So anything about property, too, if I was on a jury for that. No way, Jose. But a murder trial? Uh, defense attorneys, you want me because I can be so easily swayed. <laughs> you're like going in strong. I know he did it. And then you get the defense. You're like, oh, geez. I don't know. But I think that that's a good trait because <laughs> I can see two sides of a story. Absolutely. But, but I say that because I think I feel like I don't think it's always a good idea to take the stand in your own trial. Right. Because you can get tripped up and you can get frustrated and that comes off bad to a jury. Um, But I feel like if he really is innocent, which I don't think he is. No, I don't think so. I think the evidence is there that Darren Wint was was responsible for this murder. And, um, but I feel like if he was... If he is innocent, this is like a last-ditch effort to prove his innocence in some sort of way. Right. So, I don't know. But the Laura Bach seems like an amazing prosecutor. Right. But she was so repetitive, which I get that that is like, you know, that is um, a strategy that they use. Right. But he had like nerves of steel. I know. And he said, can you repeat the question? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Right. And I'm in my car like, he said no five times. Move <laughs> Shut up. on. Right. Uh, but if you haven't listened yet, 22 Hours is such a good podcast. Yes, it really is. And then we talked a little bit about um, the documentary on HBO, I Love You, Now Die. And mm-hmm. talk about, that is so well done. It's in two parts. So mm-hmm. you get like the prosecution and then you get the defense. Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, it just shows you like what you see in the media mm-hmm. versus reality. And Wow. It yeah. is. It, I don't know how I feel about it. I'm still kind of torn on it, and I've listened to TCO True Crime Obsessed their um, recap of it, mm-hmm. and I'm with them. I mean, it's a it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. If you just were to take the one side Absolutely. of the prosecution, like yes, she did it. She's depraved. Like, 
But then when you also see, when you get to see her side that we've never really seen before. Right. And also, like, her, she needed help. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like, she's going to go to jail, but are they helping her? Yes. That is something that, like, prison, American prisons are not meant for reforming people. Right. Like, it's just for punishment. And I feel like she was still only 20. She probably could have gone to a juvenile detention center at 20 years old and actually maybe, or not even, maybe... A psych hospital, or right. she needs help for she sure. She needs some serious help. And his mom help. even, you know, brings it up that she doesn't live in reality. No, she doesn't. And I think that was huge of her, you know, his mother to admit, you know, she doesn't. How can you, you know? I mean, right. like, I think in her heart, she probably just has to forgive her because she doesn't live in reality. I right. Mean, it's it's a lot. You should definitely watch it. It is an awesome documentary. It's so so good. And then I need to know where my bachelorette girls are. Not here. Natalie's <laughs> not one. It's killing me. Tonight, finale. I have not read the spoilers. I am pumped. And she's a way better bachelorette than I was willing to give her credit for before this started. She has a backbone. She will send dudes home. She will confront them. She, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, you know, it's The Bachelorette. And I'm a little embarrassed that I've watched since the beginning. Everybody watches. I feel like the minority because I don't watch. Why have you not given in? So I watched it in the... My mom watched it in the mm-hmm. beginning. So, like, in turn, I also watched right. it. And I don't know. I feel like lately... <laughs> I watch reality television. Oh, yeah. I love Bravo. Yeah, Natalie so. is your Bravo girl. <laughs> I do love some below deck med, but that's all I watch on Bravo. When I make this statement, I am not saying it because I'm so above reality television because I am absolutely am not. I was about to say, you cannot say that. <laughs> no. I watch all the Real Housewives franchise, I am, and I am not above them getting sponsorships and money from that, but right. I really feel like The Bachelorette and The Bachelor have turned into just becoming these like B-list celebrities and not actually looking for like what it was intended for. So that makes me even more not. Yeah, they're all like Insta celebrities now and don't really have real jobs. And it's, it is annoying. And also like almost every, I think all of the couples that are together are not from an original Bachelor or Bachelorette show. So basically like Trista is with Ryan, but she was on episode one of The Bachelor and then became the Bachelorette, and that's where she met her husband. Mm. And then a lot of the couples have met on like Bachelor in Paradise, which oh my god is the best. And that you need to watch that. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but I don't know any of the relationships, and I don't know. You don't any need of the to know for that because oh, okay. basically they just all get on there and like hook up and whatever. Okay. So like all the relationships have come not from an original. It's interesting. Like it's been like oh I became the Bachelor because I was a reject on the Bachelorette kind of a thing. Mm. It's it's interesting, but okay. you know I'm pumped about it. Two night finale, which I'm not pumped about, and I have to work mm-hmm. tomorrow. So it's just a whole thing, and mm-hmm. I gotta get people to not talk about it. But yeah, Bravo, Bachelorette, all of it. Mm-hmm. All right, to our podcast, yes. to our um, episode. So we're gonna talk about some crimes that happened in our hometowns. So homegrown it. homicide. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'll start. One of the guys. There's actually four people that were convicted for this murder, robbery, and murder, and one of them I actually graduated high school with. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
All right, so on September 6, 2010, three mass robbers entered the Ingalls grocery store. Oh, I didn't even say where I'm from. Oh, yeah. Hit it. <laughs> Hit it. Um, I am from Cumming, Georgia, which is like 45 minutes north of Atlanta. Um, small town, suburbia. I mean, yeah. when my parents moved there... Um, there was an Ingalls grocery store. Ingalls is like small town. We're not sure that they're in other states. I need to look. If they are, then it's in the South. Yeah, right. Then it's only in the South. Yeah. Um, and cows and like a couple high school, like I think there were like two high schools when my brother, because my brother's 13 years older than I am. When he went to high school, he told me the story that they would take roll from ninth to 10th grade A through Z in the gym every morning and then go to their first class. What? That's how small this wow. high school was. Yeah. So um, you had to dial one in front of the number because it was considered going long I distance. remember that. That's a big deal. Yeah. So when this happened, coming had become much like what it is today, larger, like with a bunch of neighborhoods and high schools and elementary schools. And um, it's just a little boring town north of Atlanta. Um, so anyway, on September 6, 2010, three mass robbers entered the Ingalls grocery store on Canton Road and coming, um, the security guard, David Casto, uh, at the time was 37 and two other employees were present at the time and they were forced into a freezer in the back of the store. Casto was shot execution style with his own gun. Um, I know. And he was the only member of the three people that were murdered. All right, so um, a couple days after this happened, they ended up charging four teenagers with the uh, robbery and murder. Nikita Holmes, who was 19, Tyrese Adside, who was 18, Sherrod Johnson, who was 18, who's the guy I graduated high school with, um, and then an unnamed 16-year-old juvenile. Um, Can you imagine being messed up in something like that when you were 16? No. That is crazy. No, which... They, I'll bring this up later in the story, but um, I think he got a lesser sentence because they said he was age. only 16. They feel like he was maybe taken a little advantage of. Um, but no, I can't. And you're so impressionable at that age too. Right. I just, I can't even imagine. It's so scary. Um, so, Sherrod Johnson actually worked at the Ingalls store. He was an employee. Um, and they believe well they know because he told the cops a couple days later he left the back door open so the other three could get in um and he basically like which how much money does an ingles have and i mean just just out of curiosity i don't know how much they keep on hand especially the ingles probably not that much i wouldn't think for Um, this very reason you know but i read um in the article that was saying all their sentencing jackson the kid that was 16 at the time he got five grand Oh, wow. And that's it. I mean, when you're 16, I guess that's a lot of money. Right. But when you're 16, that's a lot of money. But when you're, <laughs> you, you are right about that. Um, okay. So Sherrod and the other, it was a girl that was tied up in the back. And um, the security card was shot point blank. Um, so Sherrod and the girl were tied up with duct tape. And they were able to, like, get themselves loose. And they called for help. Um, they, the police questioned both of them and instantly became suspicious of Sherrod. Um, and then in just a couple hours, he copped the scheme and gave up the name of the other three involved. Um, 
They also later found out that they were responsible for the robbery of two Waffle Houses. Oh, I do love me some Waffle House. <laughs> but again, how much money do you think they have on hand? Right. I, I don't on Saturday I mean, night. Back then they were cash only, I think. Oh. Potentially. Like, I in 2010? Oh, uh, 2010. Never mind. I'm thinking of when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love me some Waffle House. Oh, same. Same. Um, so this was their first murder. So convictions. In April of 2012, Holmes, now 21, pled guilty to the crime and was sentenced to life without parole. During her trial, it was found that she was the one who actually shot um, David Casto, the security guard. Um, And then the other two, Jackson and Adside, were in the front of um, the store committing the robbery. In August of 2012, Sherrod Johnson uh, was charged as party to the crime, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and burglary. He was charged with two life sentences plus 20 years without the possibility of parole. Um, the jury just found that since he was the employee that let the robbers into the store and probably gave them all of the inside right. you know, scoop about what time they start closing down, maybe how to get into the safe right. or all when the, the safe will be unlocked. Right. So they felt like he was most culpable for the crime. Um Adside will serve 20 years in prison without the possibility of parole and then 20 years on probation for his negotiated plea, which was reduced due to his testimony for the state against Sherrod Johnson. Um, And then Jackson, who was the minor at the time, was also sentenced to 25 years in prison and 20 years on uh, probation, no possibility of parole. So these these two who were like 20-ish years old at the time of their sentencing will be in their 40s by the time that they get out. So they they can go and live a full life. Right, absolutely. Yeah, which is upsetting for the family um, of David Casso, who of course. was only 37. That's really sad. It's very sad. But two people are serving life sentences, um, and the person who actually shot him is going to serve a life sentence right. without the possibility of parole. So Good. That's good. Um, but, yeah, that's really the only, like... I'm sure there's other murders and coming that I'm just not privy to, but it was crazy when that happened and knowing, like, I knew this person and we didn't, like, run in the same circle, right. but... But you still went to school with him. Right. And, right. It's and have, like, memories of mm-hmm. him. And, and I think since they did other robberies, I think this one just got out of hand. Right. And something scared her and she made like a rash decision and killed somebody right so it's really sad really sad Mm. yeah well speaking of sad i'm gonna (laughs) let's just make it sadder (laughs) i'm gonna talk about a case that happened in canton i um before my freshman year of high school we moved to cherokee county which is the neighbor of coming actually where Mm -hmm. natalie's from i grew up in morrow in clayton county shout out to my clayco peeps (laughs) yes so we moved to cherokee county at the time there were two high schools and like cow pastures and mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. up there. It was nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time I graduated, they had built a new high school and I went to that school. So I'm going to talk about a girl named Claudette Fisick that I went to high school with. We graduated together from Sequoia. And um, this happened in 1994. So um, they actually aired her story on Swamp Murders, which is a show on Oxygen. In two th- oh, I'm sorry. It was, it was on ID. 
not oxygen. Oops. Oh, I do love me some investigation I love discovery. ID, yeah. So, um, Swamp Murders in 2015, and her episode was called The Devil Down in Georgia. So, in 1994, Claudette was a sophomore at Southern Tech, which is a college in Marietta or Kennesaw, I can't remember. And it's changed names. It was like Southern Poly something. Mm-hmm. I think it's a different mm-hmm. name now. But she was an architect major there. And at that time, she was dating a guy named Jason Raglan, and they met at PetSmart, where they both worked. So, Claudette was supposed to visit her parents on Valentine's weekend of 1994. They lived in Trenton, South Carolina, and it was her first visit to her parents' farm. She never made it. Um, um, she planned on taking Jason with her to meet her parents. So, some background on Jason. He attended the University of Georgia. Go dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked together for about a year at PetSmart. He was the fish manager. <laughs> I was waiting for you. I thought that was interesting because in the documentary they mention it a couple of times. <laughs> they want to make sure everybody right. knows he fish was the manager. Manager. <laughs> and Claudette was actually a groomer there. Which would while be she so was in, funny. I know. Yeah. When she was in school. So I couldn't do the anal glands though. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, sidebar. <laughs> Love my dog, but I pay someone to do that. But somebody else right. has to. Yes. yes. But, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit about Claudette. She was like really sweet. Um, I think I had one or two classes with her and I tried to find my senior yearbook and I could not find it mm. to see if she had signed it. Yeah. Um, but she was really, really sweet and she was so little. I mean, I think in the documentary they said like she was five foot two and like 90 pounds. She was so, so small. small, so little, petite, so cute, really sweet. So some important people to note, Michael Braddock, which was a coworker at the PetSmart um, and they used to date. John Gertz, who was a classmate and a friend who happened to be one of the last people to see her on campus before she went missing. So, when she didn't show up at her parents that evening, they went searching for her. They wondered if she had gotten lost since it was her first time there, mm-hmm. and they alerted um, authorities. So, two days after she disappeared, her truck was found abandoned in Atlanta at Techwood Homes, which actually no longer exists. It was a public housing project, and the first public housing project built in the U.S. in 1935. I thought that was interesting. That's a really interesting tidbit yeah, about it. I had Atlanta. no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it was revamped in 1990 after Atlanta won the bid for the Olympics. And her um, truck was left there with the keys in the ignition. Mm. So, yeah, mm. thinking, red flag. Right. right, trying to make sure that somebody stole it exactly. as a little, also a red herring, too. Right, exactly. So her mom and brother passed out flyers and visited all the areas that she was known to go. And um, the last time she was seen was on Wednesday, February 16th of 1994. So several weeks later, the police received an anonymous letter and map stating that Claudette's body was buried in a romet remote wooded part of Dallas, Georgia, which is like way way out out west. west. And, you know, a massive search ensued, but no evidence was ever found. They ended up actually receiving three notes and maps total and believe it was actually a hoax and it was someone that lived in the area and was probably watching the search as it happened. That is just terrible. Right. What's wrong with people? Right. Why Why would you do that to their family? The emotional turmoil. It's so sad. And the investigation, like... I hope that that person was charged with... They didn't mention it, but surely they can charge them with something. Well, like, I mean, you you're, know? You're essentially you're wasting tax dollar money. Absolutely. Like, because you're taking the police on this wild goose chase that... you Doesn't know, exist. Right, that doesn't exist. And actually, you're not even involved in. Right. So why would you even put that target just on your back? Creeper. Ugh, just so awful. People. So, several weeks after her disappearance, Claudette's body was found in the Oconee River in Athens, which is um, where the University of Georgia is located, mm-hmm. which is about an hour plus north an of hour, Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, well, it's like an hour and a half, like, northeast. Right. And and especially from the Marietta area. Right. Like, it was found in a, um, by two canoeists in a park up there. Oh, that's I know. so sad. I know. 
Um, it had been raining and flooding, and so her body had floated to the top of the river. Her body was wrapped with rope in carpet and weighed down with a boat anchor and a piece of steel. Jeez. It was determined by the medical examiner that Claudette was about four months pregnant, which was a total mm. surprise to her family. Yeah. The police interviewed Jason, Michael, and John. Jason, her boyfriend, passed his polygraph, and he said they ended up not going with Claudette to visit her parents because he had become ill. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael declined his polygraph, which was the co-worker and the guy she had dated previously. And John, the guy that last saw her on campus, failed the, act- the question, have you ever harmed Claudette? Hmm. So he took the polygraph, but he failed. Um, also, during the investigation, Lewis Martin, who was a friend of John's, um, keeps calling the police for details on the case. So Which I think weird. is so weird. Like, why are you doing that? Yeah. I, I don't understand. And disturbing. Right. Like, stay out of it. It's yeah. so weird. So after speaking with Jason at work at PetSmart, um, the officer goes across the street to a construction site and shows some pictures of Claudette asking, you know, if they recognize her. Showed pictures of Jason, Michael, and John. The construction foreman did not recognize Claudette, but did recognize Jason and said he parked near the construction site sometimes. And he'll take bricks and other things from the site for work. So I'm like, is that for, like, the fish tank? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Did he mention to them what his work is? Right. So I, was, I just thought that was interesting for them to even point it out. So it must have been something that he did regularly, right. I guess. Yeah. Um, so while the officer was at the construction site, he noticed a piece of steel that looked a lot like the one found with Claudette. And so he actually called the lab and had them bring the one they found with her to the site and asked the foreman if it looked familiar. And he said, yes, it's the same type found on the site. They have unique numbers tying it to the job site. Good eye, detective. I'm telling Good eye. So at that point, they go to Jason's apartment. Oh, he's got new carpet. Mm -hmm. Um, They also realized that when he was a student at UGA, when he lived in Athens, he lived next to the Oconee River. So familiar Familiar to him. Familiar with the area. Right. They did luminol, which is what they do at night, and they spray it when they can detect um, evidence of blood, mm-hmm. and it lit up in his apartment. Like so, a Christmas tree. That's right. Jason was arrested on April 11th, less than two months after Claudette's disappearance. He was charged with the murder of Claudette and her unborn child. Because she was pregnant, he can get the death penalty because he killed two people. Hmm. Good. Yes, exactly. In August of 1996, um, in exchange for taking the death penalty, like take it off the table, he pled guilty to the murder. Well... Good. I mean, because he pled guilty, then basically her family didn't have to go through a right. big, long, drawn-out trial. Right. So and they have closure, too. Right. They, so, yes, exactly. But I'm just, I'm always like, really? I mean, you can kill someone, but oh my gosh, I can't have the death penalty. It just always blows my mind. Right. Oh, here's what we think happened. Claudette told Jason she was pregnant. She wanted to keep the baby and get engaged. She had planned on going to her parents and announce the pregnancy and her engagement. And apparently he felt trapped in a life he did not want. Oh, poor him. Which, I mean, break up with her. Thank you. You know? Right. Why is your first thought, I have to kill her? Right. Like, no. You just, I mean, yeah, you may be a little bit of a piece of shit for (laughs) (laughs) leaving your girlfriend and, you know, your child. But she would much rather that than be dead. Right. Exactly. I can't even believe that that's a thought process in your mind. I don't get it. You see it all the time, though. It's insane. Mm -hmm. You see it on the news. But that's your reasoning. Right. Exactly. So apparently she had showed up at his apartment that evening when he canceled on going with her to her parents. And he basically beat her to death. He even went to work the next afternoon. What? Yep. 
That's the kind of person that, you're dealing with. That is crazy. Yeah. That you can totally turn off all emotion, go to work, act like nothing's wrong. Right. When your girlfriend and unborn child's dead body are right. in your apartment. It's in your home. Crazy. It's disgusting. So um, after work, he rolled her body into a carpet along with a boat anchor and then the welded piece of steel from the construction site. He then drove toward Athens and took her to the Oconee River. He drove her truck and abandoned it at Techwood Homes, thinking that it would throw people off and left the keys in the ignition, hoping someone would steal it. Um, he received a, a life sentence. Good. And he's serving it. Um, her mom made the comment in the documentary that he killed her on Ash Wednesday and she was found on Palm Sunday. That is so sad. I know. It's really sad. She was a sweet girl. Yeah. Oh, I hate to end on like heavy sad note, but you, you want know? to talk about The Bachelorette again? Will that make you feel better? <laughs> Take me back. Um, so definitely tune in to episode three. We are talking about Fred Tokars, mm. which was a huge mm. case in Atlanta. And there's an even a twist that I didn't even know about. Um, so I started researching it for this um, for our podcast. Check us out on social media at um, Quirks and Crime Podcast on Facebook, Quirks and Crime Podcast on Instagram. We'll be on Snapchat. And we have email, Quirks and Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.